0: Welcome back to Sharing Air, the podcast that reflects on our health and our humanity in the face of imposed isolation, competing information, and fears that are entirely understandable. Our ruling mantra after all is, que sera, sera which as we discussed last week, is not simply a carefree song sung by a chirpy Doris Day, but an altogether more serious recognition that we really can't know what will be, only that this is. This is now. And this is us. And we're going to dig down into the now and see how we might reorient our stories of this coronavirus crisis as we live it out. I'm Ann Farrell, Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Claremont Graduate University and the co-host of Sharing Air. Today's session we're calling On Air.
1: And I'm your other co-host, Andy Vasco. I am the Associate Provost of Transdisciplinary Studies also at Claremont Graduate University.
0: Andy, just to check in with you from last week, uh, how's the breathing going?
1: The, the breathing's been good. Um, I started taking some Zoom exercise classes for kickboxing online, and I have to say that really does the trick. Whenever I'm feeling like I'm having a rough day, it's actually counterintuitive, but I find afterward my breathing is much better. I've gotten all of my uh, internal anxieties out. It really helps. It really helps. How's your breathing?
0: <laughs> My breathing is fine. I would like to actually take Zoom kickboxing because I would like to kick Zoom across the table um, some days. <laughs> I'm really tired of being on Zoom. And the things that they were now being invited to do on Zoom, um, it, you know, they're diverting. But I think in a way, there's almost been too many meetings, uh, too many happy hours, uh, too many... You know, too many uh, sort of Zoom solutions to what I really am craving, um, which is to be breathing in the space of somebody else uh, and people. So this has been hard for me. And It's funny because last week when we were talking, um, this felt it felt very you know sort of theoretical and fun to talk about sharing air and what it was like uh, and what it, what what it meant to do that. And this week I'm I'm actually kind of um, craving it. Uh, craving having those kind of conversations instead of um, sort of just communing with my screen. But I'm going to try that kickboxing stuff.
1: If you want to do it with me, it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be like we're standing right next to each other. and, And we haven't had that experience before of kickboxing together.
0: You'd have to see me kickboxing?
1: Maybe. Yeah. That'd be,
0: that might, well, that would actually be, you know, be a source of innocent merriment. That would be, <laughs> I'd
1: be a lot of fun <laughs> for both of us. I mean, we're each standing in our living rooms kicking the air. Yeah, it's kicking not the like air, the best right? look of anybody. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's how we over. share our air.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, Zoom has actually been in the news this week, which I think has been really, really interesting. Um, you know, Zoom, which was, you know, so this very easy uh, system to use, as we all know now. Now that it's actually being used by everybody, all of its um, quirks and warts are showing. And um, people are sort of are, are Zoom bombing. People are interrupting Zoom meetings. People are finding out that Zoom is actually um, inadvertently and inadvertently perhaps um, sharing information. Um, and so, all of a sudden, Zoom has had its moment in the sun, um, and it's beginning to shrivel a little bit. So, it's been kind of interesting. Have you been, you know, what's what's been sort of diverting you in the news these days?
1: Um, certainly the Zoom story, because I, like so many people in our community, have been completely dependent on it, not only for for work things, but also to, you know, I'm I'm connecting with people all across the world, and it's been great for that. And then, you know, the spotlight's on it, so you start to hear that or start to see that maybe there's some imperfections in the system. Um, I thought it was quite uh, apropos that our last week's show on air, and we delved into some of the concepts around air, were the same time that uh, we were speaking, there was the, the announcement that everybody should be wearing masks outside, and then it turned into you have to wear masks outside. We've been hearing from early on from the Surgeon General, um, all the way through medical experts, uh, departments of public health, CDC, don't wear masks, useless, bad, more trouble than it's worth. And then the the story kind of changed to, well, maybe for healthcare workers, and then, well, maybe it's a good idea, and now it's a you have to. And we had to witness all of that and figure out, wait a minute, where in there was this applicable to us? Because you gave us at least four different messages, and and it wasn't really clear along the way. So we're seeing that importance of being able to hold on to that information and interpret that information Um and, and how we depend on some other people who are very, who are very important to us to, to interpret that information. I thought that was a really relevant story.
0: I know. And, and I think at the time we were speculating about what would happen next and what it meant. And, and I was very confused. You know, I, I am easily confused by all these mixed messages. But I find the new version of masks, I think that I heard for the first time today, the most interesting, which is now tying the the wearing of masks into what one might call the forever notion of how we may deal with with the world after this virus goes through its first pass with us. And that is that, you know, there's speculation now, will we all begin wearing masks all the time in public the way in other parts of the world people often do. So now it's not just should we all be wearing masks, what does it mean to wear a mask, but will this forever alter our sense of ourselves in the world, you know, especially in this sharing air sense of the world, will we all put on masks from now on when we go to the baseball game or when we go to Costco or when we go, you know, out to, um, to dinner, like, will we wear masks. Will we wear all wear masks on the bus. Uh, and um, that means that people are starting to actually think through whether the mask becomes, you know, a necessary uh accessory sort of like i don't know um eyeglasses or shoes um the things that we've given up now that we we live at home so i think that's been masks have been the, i think has been the trope of the of the of the week you know how to wear a mask melania shows how to wear a mask donald refuses to wear a mask um and masking becomes that kind of um you know in my mind kind of an indicator of the way we see ourselves uh, as we, we relate to other people. Right now, part of our faces might always be hidden. And um, that part of our face that smiles and actually indicates um, uh, our reactions to each other. So there's there's gonna be a lot, I think, you know, that goes forth this way, as we think about um, what masking or masking on a regular basis when in groups is gonna mean for us if it actually gets to that.
1: Yeah, it would be a real challenge
0: yeah. One of the other things that I thought was actually a very interesting story this week, and, and the idea that a, that a mask could be part of, say, a holiday celebration or something. Um, holidays going virtual was a, a really big set of stories this week because we had this amazing... Conver- we would have had these stories whether there was coronavirus or not, right? We we had these stories about... I mean, this is kind of an, uh, an unusual um, convergence, right? We have um, Passover, Easter, and Ramadan all in the same week. Um, and this has meant uh, that people are are celebrating in ways that usually mean kind of, um, you know, large group gatherings at church and synagogue for meals, um, for pilgrimage, um, have all been, everybody's been told to stay home. And, uh, and everybody's been trying to figure out what the virtual, uh, what the virtual dimension of religious observance might be. And, and that's, you know, that's been fascinating because normally this week we, we'd be hearing all about, you know, all the crowds in St. Peter's Square, um, all the people in Jerusalem. Um, and now what we have are pictures of people looking into their screens at um, at each other um, and governments trying to figure out how to tell people they can't go on pilgrimage and they can't assemble when the whole point of a lot of religious observance is assembling.
1: I think that's really relevant. And I think to bring it back to the Zoom conversation, so... Uh, one of my mentors and, and a friend of mine who used to live in the L.A. area who's now in Chicago, is holding a Seder at his place at, you know, six o'clock in Chicago, which means there's, of course, a time change, uh, two hours difference over here. But he's like, you know, if, if you can come, why don't you join us? So I decided, you know, I, I got through with my last Zoom meeting straight from nine to four. I'd been Zooming, 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 Zooming. And at four, I'm like, you know, I think I should do this. I, I just, on a whim, I was like, I'm going to join the Zoom meeting. So I ran into my kitchen. I felt really, um, I'm, I'm used to celebrating Passover with my family. It is one of the big holidays we celebrate. I am definitely not stocked for Passover. I had made chicken soup last week and it was in my freezer. I had nothing else. So I decided to use a rice cake to represent matzah, even though that's a pretty big stretch. I had some apple and yeah, oh yeah, I had fun with this. Apple and walnuts. I had a little bit of orange marmalade and some cinnamon and a splash of wine. And I made what we call charoset, which is uh, supposed to represent brick and mortar. I did uh, extra walnuts to be bitter. I threw in an asparagus spear and blanched it that was frozen and added it to salt water. And then I made an egg. And I made in 10 minutes a Seder plate for myself that was as close as I could, given what I had. And I turned on Zoom and joined them all 10 minutes into the Seder. And they all welcomed me. There was a big group of them doing this all over the country. And they all waved and said, OK, like Andy, get started. How about you read the next passage in the story the Passover as we do or the, in our book called the Haggadah? And after I read, you know, I, I muted because I know my Zoom etiquette and I just started crying. Like, I couldn't believe in some ways, I couldn't believe in some ways, uh, this was how I was celebrating it. But it was actually more of a, like, I, w- I was moved. Like, this is amazing. Given what we have, like, I'm still doing it. This is what we do. This is our tradition. We're finding a way. Um, it's with a rice cake and an asparagus spear. Um, but we made it work. And that was really moving to me. And I, it represented a lot more than that, clearly. And maybe it's because I've been living by myself. And things just seem a little bit bigger and more emotional. But it was really, really, it was a thing for me.
0: I moved too, actually. And I, I, at first I was just jealous because like you have the best pantry in the world. Like, (laughs) like I can't believe the things that are in your pantry. I couldn't have made heroset unless I decided to dig up something in my floor and actually make it out of cement or mortar. And, 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 you know, it seems, you know, I was, you know, I was at a, I was at a a virtual um, uh, seder as well. And I just did things like sort of wave my hands around, you know, because I didn't have any, any bitter greens um, and uh, still felt part of it, I think. But I think you're Right, I think especially for those of us that live on our own, these things when we pull them together, it is very moving. And we also, I think, at the moment, we're so struck by how badly we need to be with people and how much we depend on ritual, and how, but also how well we make do. Um, one of the things you and I have talked about about this week that we think is is kind of given our the, our our who our guest is going to be and 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 the way we're we're thinking about this world right now. Um, if last week, you know, Kesara was like, we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know what it's like to share air in this, in this circumstance, this new abnormal. This week, we want to talk a little bit about translation. In a way, you translated a practice, right? You decided that an asparagus spear stood in for, um, what did it stand in for?
1: It's some kind of green and salt water, which is the tears and the spring there you go. So what it's, so it's already, be, yeah.
0: you've translated a translation, right? These things which are representative translate from another, from, you know, from another um ideological operation, right? And they move in so that, so that the bitter greens stand for tears and, um and the salt water uh, and your asparagus spear is taking it one step further, which is like in a world where you have asparagus spear, that's what happens. and, and, and to my mind, that's um, that multivalency of that, you know, the kind of availability of that, and also the creativity of it is very much like um, the way I tend as a as a literary scholar to think about the work of translation. Um, and 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 translation right now, I think, is also sort of very much on the forefront of both our news and our minds, isn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, as we started off saying, with the whole idea of masks, people are trying to understand what exactly is the data that's dictating mask use. And we're relying on some other expert with quotes Maybe a political leader, maybe a social media influencer, to tell us what that translation is, what's going on in their own head. And then we're taking that and we're trying to translate it for ourselves. And I mean, a, a more common trope is that everything that is communicated through science journalism is some kind of translation of what the original data looked like and then trying to broadly transmit that to a, a larger audience. But right now, it's so prevalent and so important and so impactful. I mean, it, The example of uh, President Trump saying that an anti-malaria drug, uh, hydroxychloroquine, seems to be very uh, promising in in early studies. I mean, that's him translating something that he might understand to a certain level for everybody. And the impact of that is there is a run on this particular drug now, and it's hard to stock. And there's a big worry because people actually need to take this drug if they're living with certain conditions like lupus or different rheumatoid arthritis conditions so those people are now suffering um, because there has been a stockpiling or fear of stockpiling of this like toilet paper has been um, because the translations are, are are not really taking into account the the reality and you know further this kind of translation was the original studies were coming from things that happened in a petri dish essentially if you if you were to take cells in a petri dish and inject them with with coronavirus and then use this anti malaria drug on them it seemed to work very well but that is also true for drugs that were like uh, HIV drugs or dengue fever drugs or influenza drugs that this just uh, that the that this anti malaria drug was supposed to be used in the same way for um and it didn't work in actual human treatments and so There's a process that we need to take, and we also call this process translation, of understanding how to take basic science findings from one model and translate them into the context, into the bodies, into the physiology of a human being. And it's a really important process in science that uh, translational experimentation is necessary. And we're missing that right now with coronavirus.
0: Well, I think it's because actually, you know, this is actually gets to the to the to you know people who have very little tolerance for the caseira, right? What will be means that you have to wait, and the waiting is what nobody wants to do. People want an answer now. There is, you know, and and I think that's the danger in translating the painstaking work of you know medical and and um, and other uh, uh, scientific and virologist uh, research. You know, people don't want to wait to find out what grows and how it gets applied. People want an answer now. And, you know, policymakers at their very best, and I am, you know, right now I will not, you know, place our current policymakers and governmental uh, uh, representatives in those spaces. We we all know who they are and where they go, but um, they are being pressed to say, what's going to happen now? You know, give us hope. And um and the thing about, I think that you know, scientific and medical hope is a long game, but uh, policy hope is a short game. And so, people like, um, yeah, you know, in, in for better or for worse, people like Donald Trump, but also people like, uh, you know, Governor Newsom, and um, and you know, they're they're having to play a short game. Um, the people who actually their constituents uh, don't have a long game to play right now. Um, they want to know if they're getting back to work next week. Uh, And, um, but I think what's interesting is that what we don't know is whether the virus is playing a long game or a short game, right? Is it going to, is it going to change in some way soon because, you know, the world might be more amenable to it in a different, if it, if it, if it actually um, can uh, adjust, or is it going to play a long game with us? And that's a real quandary, I think, for people who have been charged with the public trust.
1: Yeah, and, and I just, because now we're, we're playing with the word translation, you know, a virus, this virus is an RNA virus, and RNA is kind of like the intermediary cousin of DNA. It's, it's a form of blueprint that gives information. When it invades our systems, that RNA is used to create proteins, which are the structural and functional units that make the RNA's directions or DNA's directions do its work, and that's what helps the RNA then replicate and then be um, released from the cell to infect other cells in the body. That process of, of turning its RNA instruction into functional instructional units of protein is biologically, it's called translation. And so, yeah, th- there's this I- this idea of translation is, it's so... Important right now that we understand it as you said, a process that has its own time course. It has its own changing of function. So information, in one sense, turned into action, is much more complicated and more complex than information solo. And and the more complex that initial information is, and usually it's very complex, um, then the more unintended consequences we can have of what a translation of that is going to bring about.
0: That's. I mean, okay. So now I, I know. Now I now I bring my my Shakespeare cap on, just because you know Shakespeare makes it into every medical conversation with me if it's if it's at all possible, at least for comfort, if nothing else. But that I think that there's actually a really. I mean, I love that 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 the 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 use of this word in in that context, which is so you know, which is so essential right now to understand. But it also moves us into the world of the literary in its own way. I mean. Tr- Translation, in the words of a person whose uh, work I very much revere, uh, Lou Ruprecht's, is breaking the spine of an original, which means simply that you can never, you never quite have the same thing after the act of translation. Um, so, if you begin in one language and you move to the next, that new, that new linguistic formation has given you. Different words and a slightly different creature, whether that be a poem or a play or a novel that's been translated or just a conversation that's been translated, it there's no such thing as a one-to-one correspondence. So with with within the sort of notion of translation is the notion of a development, of a change, of a kind of space between point A and point B in which almost anything can happen, in which you almost hold your breath to try to figure out what that next, what that next creation is going to be. Um, it kind of, you know, it just, it it inhabits the spaces between the original and the place that the original must go. And therefore in a, in a, in a funny way. And, and, and I know we belabor this point a bit, but I can't resist. It depends on room to breathe and right. translation then um, allows us to see how Cultures adapt to each other, whether that be the culture in a body, pre and post virus uh, replication, the are cultures within a larger, a larger world that have to come into contact with each other and make sense of each other. So think of bodies making sense of that. Virus. Our bodies are. I mean, that sounds like a very benign way of talking about what happens when people get ill. But it is a body making sense of a, of a virus. It's it's actually trying to it's trying to figure out what it's being turned into and marshaling its own resources to uh, confront it. Um, and in a um, in a perhaps less um, medical sense, but I think in 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 a kind of very human sense, uh, translation itself makes us stand back and see. The interactions of more than one culture that are necessary, um, and it's a kind of a breathy definition, I suppose, and maybe a little bit um, lackadaisical. But I actually want to use this now because I, I want to actually f- turn to uh, our guest now and and actually introduce somebody who's a specialist in the art of translation um, and many other things as well. Uh, so. Uh, This week, I wanted to um, say that we are delighted to welcome our first guest to the uh, Sharing Air conversation. Sharing our air this week is CGU professor of religion, Tammy Schneider. Um, Professor Schneider is a specialist in the history of the ancient Near East, and she teaches courses on many subjects, um, but on Hebrew Bible as well at at, uh, Claremont Graduate University. She's also a very deeply experienced archaeologist. She's currently CGU's professor in the field at the excavations at Tel Ako, making a little plug here for that. Um, I'm doing that because I'm actually one of the shovel bums on that particular uh, project. It's been a tremendous amount of fun, but she and I both know what it's like to put on a makeshift bandana, protect our nose from the air. Uh, So uh, I want to start with a a question for uh, Professor Schneider. Tammy, what kind of a translator are you? Depends who you ask.
2: (laughs) Um, So... Um, we do a lot of translating in my classes and one of the things that we do, I specialize in the Hebrew Bible and we like to read it in the original, um, which is Hebrew. And, um, so when I like my students who know Hebrew to read it out loud, because every language has an ebb and a flow and a sound and a feel to it. And, um, and it's important for students reading it to, to try and achieve that and feel that. And I also think it's important, even for those who don't, to get a sense of what that sounds like and what those different ebbs and flows are. And then my students have to translate the line as close to the original Hebrew as possible. And so contrary to most translations where the goal is to make the verses sound really nice because it's the Bible. Um, the goal in my class is to make it sound clumsy and complicated and difficult and not always as clear as possible so that my students, both those who know Hebrew and those who don't, understand how complex translation is, um, that that um, you cannot different languages are formed differently. They have um, complicated structures, or in the case of Hebrew, actually not complicated structures. And um, Semitic languages are connected in a way, they all have these um, three root letters and then what you do to those letters, um, shift them from a noun to a verb. And so meaning is connected in a way that is not so much the case in say English. So um, so my goal is always to lift up that as soon as you translate, um, you interpret, um, and to try and get back to, if not, how best to interpret it to at least understand where those problems in translation are.
0: Oh, I love that, because I think it really does connect up to what Andy and I were talking about in terms of getting from, say, a scientific or a medical um, analysis to what one might call a policymaker's mouth and how complexity can sometimes fall away uh, in a way that is actually, can turn out to be misleading. We were talking about this, Andy and I were talking about this prior to this podcast as a kind of interesting version of the Tower of of, of Babel. And then we actually realized you would be on our show <laughs> and you would actually, you would actually know something about that that story uh, in, um, in the Hebrew Bible. So it's, I've always just, I mean, sort of simply, I've always just thought of the story as, uh, as, a, as a really, you know, quick and dirty uh, explanation for why it is that we uh, don't always understand each other and why things need to be translated. But, but from, you know, from, from your studies and, 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 um, and, and in your thoughts about it, like why would any deity, like why would any, you know, all seeing uh, God want people to confound and misunderstand each other?
2: So um, I love the Tower of Babel, uh, and I think about it all the time. So you thank you for asking. So um, it turns out that um, that the, um, the Israelite deity actually um, – so when you look at the Tower of Babel story, which is in Chapter 11 of Genesis, um, basically um, it argues that everyone had the same language, and um, they said they basically want to build this tower – um, so that they can make a name for themselves, right? And they want to make themselves, right? That's how you make a name for yourself, right? You put your name on the building, right? You build the bigger building, right? Mine's bigger. So they, um, so that's the goal of that story. And um, the Israelite deity is just not amused by that um, and is sort of annoyed that here they have this opportunity to understand each other, and what do they do? They try and become bigger than they should be. And so the whole notion of giving people different languages is to make it harder for any one person to um, to sort of take over. Um, the irony is that in the very next chapter, chapter twelve, the Israelite deity, the the gift that the deity gives. Um, or offers to Abraham to listen to the deity is to give him a a big name. Um, And so um, I actually argue that chapter 12 of Genesis with the call to Abraham is directly connected to the Tower of Babel. And I think the point of translation is that if we are not communicating on the same level, right, if we're not then it's harder for us to achieve great things. So sort of the reverse reading of that could be understanding is the way that you do achieve great things. Um, just one other sort of ironic part about that is nowhere in the Hebrew Bible is an inability to understand other people lifted up as a major issue. So there are places where um, people are separated and, you know, there's where they say, oh, speak speak in Aramaic so that they won't understand, right? So to kind of use that, but the idea of not, um, of people not understanding other languages is never a major um, component of the, of the text. And so the point of changing our languages is to make it harder for us, which um, I think goes back to everything that we were talking about. If we are not all on the same wavelength, if we are not understanding each other correctly, if we are not Listening carefully to what the others are saying, we are going to get it wrong, and we're not going to achieve great things.
1: I think at the same time, um, when when in one version of the story, it can it can be looked at as tragic, or we can focus on the 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 parts of of giving everybody a different language is something that's a real struggle. I, I tend to look at this almost in the way that I look at universities. We've got lots of different departments, and everybody's trying to seek out knowledge at the same time. And if everybody spoke the exact same language, we'd all be studying it in a more broad, but at the same pace, um, fashion. And at least allowing some separation allows the evolution of individual culture in the way that when you separate language, that when you, the real gift is being able to look back on history and, and uh, antiquity and see, okay... At this point, we've all evolved in slightly different languages, slightly different cultures. We've we've moved in a direction that was based on an initial shift in the type of information that we were allowed to express to each other. But when we start tracing it back and find the original instruction, we can see how those original instructions were far more complex because of each of each language that maybe took a little different part of of those initial instructions and interpret it in their own different contexts. And so by allowing for a diversity of separation that way and individual evolutions that will happen afterward, then you get this huge radiating breadth of of outcomes that you can see, you know, thousands of years later. Um, And it's, the problem is that if we stop there, that's that's the tragic part because then we never realized that there was a shared space with everybody else. And that's why I think it's so cool that when we can look at something like a protein and trace it back to the DNA or look at a phenotype, what, what's going on in someone's body and trace it back to a protein, or we can look at our cultural norms now and trace it back to antiquity. Those are all represented in, in kind of a Babel way without it necessarily being such a terrible thing as long as we're willing to go back and, and look at what Babel was telling us in the first place.
2: One could say that that what is the goal, right? So if the goal is something just to um, uh, build a big tower to make your name great, then maybe communication isn't really the great thing. But what do we focus our ability to communicate on is what um, it may be suggesting, right? use your, your powers for communication for good and things you'll achieve things.
0: And also make use it for something that is a little bit more subtle and complex. I mean, just building a great big tower, you know, is, is in, in, you know, is in many ways, just a kind of dumb big thing to do. And I I love this notion, Andy, about the way that a university wouldn't all be working on exactly the same project in exactly the same language and exactly the same way. Uh, because that would just produce one big dumb thing or you know or at least you know if not dumb just one big thing and this one way one big thing sure yeah yeah and so um so better to get to the big thing that we do through a variety of compromises and um and what and uh, w- and collaborations that allow us to think across those boundaries, right? This is actually uh, one of the things that we that we like to say that we do at CGU. But I also think that uh-huh. we that we know that that they wouldn't work as well if we just, even if we, it, with the best will in the world, just got together and 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 all and and work together without having those bridging. Um, those, those bridging devices like methods and theories that allow us to talk across those boundaries and to also make those subtle shifts in our own work that allow it to actually work better with other people's work. Um, so that's that's you know translation is one of those things we have to do. I mean, in 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 trans you know transdisciplinary work, we translate because we don't all speak the same language. And if we did, uh, what we what we would make in the end together would be a, a, a fairly uninteresting thing. I think it would also not really represent the best of what we can do in this kind of humanistic and social scientific endeavor.
1: And it's and it's and in transdisciplinary work actually the and it was taken from anthropology. The The interpreter is the most important person in, in any kind of group project. Um, that's where all of the bottleneck happens because so many things when you're working across, not just disciplines, working across cultures, working across problems that involve so many different people. Um, the translator is the one who shapes everything. And there's a real shortage on translators in general. We're not trained to be the translator in, in group work. Um, and it's not that you have to just know two different languages. Is you have to know what happens um, from information in one space when it's shared with information in another space. What changes do you have to look out for? How is that going to be interpreted across that that translational space? So, it's it's one of the most important parts. And I think there's a lot of times when we're looking at any kind of problem, whether it be you know as as you and Tammy were describing. Uh, is it is it worth such a gift as communication to waste it on something so vain as having your name on a building? Or other, like any kind of lesson or problem, you can find points where translation is relevant. Um, if, if you if you look back at, at the masks, for instance, and you say, well, wait, this is the idea of contagion versus miasma has really played a role in how we determine whether or not something is airborne in today's lexicon. Um, like there, there are points when you look that actually reveal themselves as translation points, and when there's a, a pandemic like this, I think they become a little bit more clear. Like translating a Seder into a spear of asparagus um, a, a, over Zoom is, is clearly a point where you, where you understand that this is a translation moment, and it allows you to go back and look to see what, what did that information look like from the beginning. Yeah.
0: Tammy, you know, this, this makes us wonder, I think all I mean, you know, Andy, you just, you were just talking about masks and um, because you are a translator, um, I'd be really curious and I know Andy would be as well. I mean, we've been talking about certain words that we think that we know the, the meaning of because we use them in our context here, but um, you might be able to actually shed some light on, a, on, a, on some ancient understandings of some words that we've been throwing around in the last two weeks. And I'm curious about um, words like air or breath. So
2: Hebrew has um, a few words that um, get grouped together um, that have to do with those notions. So there's, there's actually three biggies. There's nephesh, which um, can mean breath, and it also means soul, um, and is sometimes um, equal to life. Then there's also a word which is ruach, which also means um, um, air or breath, but it has more of a sense or connotation of um, wind um, and also gets translated as spirit and or soul. And then there's a third word, which is um, neshama, which also gets translated as breath and or soul. Um, and they all are used uh, differently. And here's, here's the other thing about translation and what words mean is a word may mean some one thing in a particular time and place and then uh, be, mean something else later on. And yet we read that into it and through it. And so, um, so a word may start out with one meaning come to mean something completely different or connected, or sometimes even the opposite, Um, and also is the case that sometimes people use a word to mean one thing, whereas another group hears a very different thing um, when hearing that word. So um, in this particular case, neshama is usually used, most Jews would argue that that's the word that means soul, um, and that that is the most common one. But ironically enough, that's the least common word for soul, at least in the first five books, the Pentateuch, um, as it is known. Um, And in the Pentateuch, um, the word nefesh is used more often. And so these words kind of um, are grouped differently together, depending on who's using them and why. Um, And so, um, so. They're all connected. Um, and at least in Hebrew, the concept of soul, breath, spirit, air are all interconnected.
0: It makes it also sound to me as if the soul is, is intimately connected in those relationships to the concept of life itself.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, um, and that, and that-
1: air, is, <laughs> air is equivalent to life and soul. That's That's such an interesting and important thing to me.
2: Well, and um, as the mother of vegans, um, it is interesting that um, animals have a nefesh, uh, plants do not.
1: Hmm.
0: I love right? the idea of mother them. of vegans. It sounds like a new Game <laughs> of Thrones kind of de- definition. It is the mother of vegans. Um, I am the mother of vegans. Yes. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> but know,
0: I'm you know, here's life as as you know, life as soul. And as we know, sort of later in in, in you know in in, in Western thought, um, the body and the soul become very disconnected from each other, are seen as often even in opposition to each other. And here we see them as intimately connected um, in a variety of ways. Uh, not so much that with the with the those three words for for air or breath, but just the the connection of that with soul is. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's very telling about the idea of when life, what, what actually constitutes life. What's the word? I mean, what's the word for lungs? Is there a word for lungs?
2: So, um, in first year Hebrew, they don't teach you that funny story. (laughs) Um, when we went into lockdown, I had to, uh, race to my office and bring home my books. And one of the books that did not come home is my, um, is my dictionary, which is painting me, uh, you have no idea how much, how much I miss my dictionaries. Um, and off the top of my head, I don't know what that word is. Um, yeah. Well, Um, that's, you know, again, you didn't have to do surgery,
0: uh, with your students lately. So, so perhaps that's, that's not, that's not, that's not just a, that's completely understandable. I, let me, let me, let me ask you about something else then. I'm, I'm curious because this is, you know, I go to a lot of Passover seders uh, with you at, at our friends, our mutual friends' homes, and I don't know the meanings of all of this, all, all of the sort of practices. And what always, um, what always sort of I find very moving in the beginning, but very, very inexplicable to me, is the lighting of candles and then the movement of the hand of the candle towards the face as if you're moving the, the smoke of the candle or the light of the candle or the life of the candle into um, actually into one's breathing space. Am I misinterpreting that? Is that There's actually, a technical reason um, for that.
2: So you're not allowed to light fire on um, on Shabbat or on um, holidays where you're not allowed to work because the things that you can't do on um, what are known as as holidays and, and In Judaism, there's a difference between a holiday and a festival. And on a holiday, you can't do the same things that you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. And one of those things is to light fire. So, but you have to light the candles to mark the beginning of Shabbat. But if you're actually, if you say the prayer before you light the candles, then you're lighting fire on Shabbat, which you can't do. So, what you have to do is light the candles and then do something and then when you open, so that you close your eyes, and then when you open them, there it is, it's Shabbat. So the idea is that you gather the light, and then you cover your eyes, and then you say the blessing, and then when you open your eyes, it's Shabbat, and you've created a distance between the physical act of lighting the candles and actually seeing them. Um, A good friend of mine had a neighbor who had a tradition of, in particularly difficult weeks, she would actually push away three times so that she created clean space, and then she gathered the light to her so that um, so that the 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 good light that she was gathering was not um, mixed up with the bad stuff that was happening that week. And so I confess um, for Passover this year. I made sure that um, my candles had a mask on and um, I pushed away the bad COVID air environment feelings so that I was actually really only oh, wow. gathering the good, clean um, notions towards me. Um, and then when I opened my eyes, there it was, Passover in
0: a, during a plague. And
1: yet, yeah, can, yes, I was- gonna Can say, we, talk, we about talk
0: about that? About yeah, I was gonna say, we talk about- I mean, then the rest of the, a lot of the Passover uh, Haggadah is actually, you know, about, I was singing about frogs the other night. Yes. What is this about plagues and Passover?
2: So um, the plagues are the 10 plagues that the Israelite deity um, voice on the Egyptians to change Pharaoh's heart um, and they grow. um, So the first ones are not as painful um, as the last one. And the last one is excruciating because it is the death of the firstborn, um, and so um, and so they grow in intensity and they grow in um, in degree of pain. Um, it's one of those things where all of them can be explained um, because they are things that happen naturally. So boils, and right now there's a horrible locust situation in. Um, Africa, which is where Egypt is located. Um, And um, there are a whole series of ways that these things can be explained through modern phenomena. They can also all be explained, speaking of translation, um, in Egypt as um, uh, they've all been described in terms of politics. So, you know, the darkness and, you know, all of them are, are used um, as euphemisms for other things um, in ancient Egyptian texts. That is true for all of them, except for the death of the firstborn. Um, and that one is viewed as the, you know, piece de resistance um, and is the, the, the worst thing that can happen to you. And that is the one for which the holiday receives its name because blood of a Passover lamb is put on the lintel so that the angel of death will pass over the houses of the Israelites. And so this notion of um, being afflicted by plagues is extremely prominent in the entire story. And there are other times, many, unfortunately, in history where notion of the time in which we were living was viewed as some kind of a plague. And I think many of us um, modern Jews who were born after the Holocaust were hopeful that we would never live through a time that would be a new plague. Um, and I think um, Wednesday night, we all could identify with the Passover Seder in a way that we had not previously, because we are now living in the middle of a plague and it is horrific. And um, we do not know when it will end. And um, it will remain with, I think, the world consciousness always. Um, and um, and it, was, um, it was something, the whole point of the Passover Seder is that we are supposed to view it as though we ourselves were in Egypt to remember what that feels like. Um, and I think for many of us, it was the first time we kind of understood what that felt like. One of the other um, lines from chapter 12 of Exodus said, once you do this, do not leave your house. Do not leave your house. And so here we were living in a plague where we were categorically told, do not leave your house.
1: I, I think that what you're speaking to Tammy really resonated with my feeling from the other night that I started off with saying I just got emotional. It wasn't just one thing, but realizing that I was in my own space. There was somebody in my the community band I'm with that a couple months ago when we were starting to hear stories of this, I said, you know, I'm I'm worried about this. And she was a, a religious school teacher somewhere, um, not uh, not in a, a Jewish religious school, but still uh, relating to the story of Passover. And she just said to me like very nonchalantly. You know what? You just go into your house and you put lamb's blood on your door, and I thought, like, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not gonna quite go there. I'm not. I don't have access to oh, lamb's blood go, per Annie. se. Yeah, that would not be in my pantry, Laurieann. Um, But it, it, it as a mother mean,
2: of vegan that's a relief. Yeah, mother,
1: <laughs> yeah, that would be really tough in a vegan household. I, I don't eat a whole lot of meat myself, but. Um, that we understand the metaphor of Passover to understand our time now and to actually understand the metaphor of Passover now better than we ever did before because of what we're going through now. I went through some of the plagues, like what you were describing, locusts. There was in the news that in East Africa right now, especially, they've got this big locust problem. Um, I found a paper uh, in a biogeography journal talking about... um, that actually the the bubonic plague um, could have very well been the plague that they were referencing in in Pharaonic times, and they, they had like this whole explanation of the Nile River rats taking it down uh, when the Nile was flooding, and so when they're describing the different layers of the plague, I started to think like, oh my gosh, this is like the the, the translation of the word for for boil um, like shechin, as as we say in the seder. Um, it could have been I don't know how you properly is it boobos, Laureate that they refer to It's Boobos. Yeah. We're the same boils. Um not not absolutely sure, but it makes a whole lot of sense that the way you're characterizing this story is like the, the time of Exodus was not you know, it, it in Egypt is some of what we're experiencing now in 2020. Uh, and and what that actually feels like. Certainly there are differences and contextually there are differences. But there's a very human uh, relationship that we can have to understand, like, this is a rough year.
0: One of the things that I find striking here is that the language, as I hear it as a visitor to Passover Tables, about the plagues that visit others, in this one, we are all in that plague. And so there's not a, at one level, there's not a sparing. Um, And so... That to me is um, what made that night. What made that night different than any other night? That we are sharing. We're, you know, we're sharing not only a story of plagues, but we're also we're not sharing this. We're not ourselves in an escape from a plague. We are actually
1: part of it. And and I think the the ending of the seder is basically. like, in next year it's going to be better. Like that's that's how we ended, it, isn't it?
2: That's how we do it. And the, the goal is next year it will be all better. Um, and of course, you know, rarely is it all better. Um, but um, that's the that's the 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 point of hope um, is that next year will it be? You know, may it be all better. And um, at I, I know at, at my seder um, and at others, the the normally it's it's just you know, next year in Jerusalem. But we also added next year. May we actually be physically together?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's right? when I that's cracked it. up and started crying um, because I couldn't believe it. These are people that I've seen every year, and now I was looking at everyone on screen, um, and that was poignant, very poignant to me.
1: And and yet it's miraculous, and yet there's hope, and like it's 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 sad, but the word is really moving for me, and I'm. It, it, there's so much in it. Like we can't just translate a cry to mean one word, right? It's it's so much there.
2: Well, and I think, you know, the really big thing that we all have to focus on right now is the notion of hope, right? That if we, you know, and this is involved in this Seder too, if we do what we're told, right. And try to figure out what we're being told is no small task. Right. Um, But you know, the notion that, um, that, that, uh, physical distancing. I don't want to call it social distancing because I don't want to distance myself from my society, but I am happy to physically distance myself from that. The physical distancing is apparently what is working, right? Um, the, the curve hopefully is being flattened when I, I go for walks a lot and my husband refers to it as me trying to flatten my curves. But, um, so that, that notion has a lot of meanings to it, but, um, you know, do you know practice do do these things and we have hope right that we will be together again i i think is the is what we we took from um from passover at least
0: that's that's perfect that's perfect i think this is a, a good place for us to start thinking about um thanking you tammy for being yes, thank a you. a guest today and giving us such wisdom especially there at the end which is just um you know, if we do what we're told, if we can actually correctly interpret it, if we can translate it, then we can look to a hopeful future. Um, so thank you so much. It, uh, we learned a lot. And um, before we sign off, um, it's always time here to offer some recommendations. And I think we might even have another poem this week. Is that, is that true, Andy?
1: Yeah, I've got a poem to share with everyone. I, you're the one who informed me it was National Poetry Month. Um, yes. in addition to it being every other important thing for everybody at the same time. But I think we should- It's National COVID
0: in. Month too, yes.
1: It's nat- <laughs> National COVID Month. It's National Zoom Month. Um, but uh, I I wanted to offer a, a poem in translation and hope that uh, we can start to look at literature, uh, other things, arts, what the role of translation is and how we can trace it back to more than just- uh, uh, a redefining of what a, a particular word means. So the poem I want to share is from uh, a poet named Yosa Buson. and he was a Japanese poet who wrote uh, in the uh, in the Edo period in in the Haiku, which is what the most famous form of Japanese poetry that we know around the world. It's the five, seven, five uh, describing some nature scene where there is a sense of time there's a, a sense of uh, unity, there's a sense of capturing an essence. Uh, the Japanese poem reads like this. Nanohana ya, Tsuki wa higashi ni, hi wa ni. The translation is yellow mustard blooms, moon to the east, sun to the west. And one of the reasons why I love this poem is because it really showed me what happens when something is translated. Uh, A nanohana is a mustard bloom. It can also be called canola or rapeseed. Uh, It's a beautiful yellow flower that is in huge fields that bloom right at this time of year. And it literally translates to with the characters in Japanese of uh, some kind of flower that you can eat. And this flower that you can eat is occupying the space on one side between the moon in the east and on the other side, the sun in the west. You, you understand you're at a point of transition. And just from the sound of tsuki wa higashi ni, hi wa you can hear the flowers moving with my breath when I say it. And then when you hear it in English and you say mustard blooms, you don't get that anymore. You have to trace it back, and so I would ask for the challenge for this week to find something in translation and trace it back.
0: That is a worthy challenge because I was, you know, I, I it does sound like the wind almost moving through through those flowers, and I've seen those 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 fields of flowers. And tracing it back, it kind of that we'll be using the technique that, that Tammy talked a little bit about, realizing that it might be messy. We might actually go in some trace, some tracings from something that starts off in a way that that sounds beautiful to us and very evocative back to a place that's a little messier. Um, and that will be an interesting challenge to the challenge. Um, we should say though, the on-air challenge, um, silly us, uh, we had, we asked for people to, to meet the challenge, but we didn't give you any way of reaching us. Um, and now we're forced to answer the challenge from last week ourselves. Because we didn't, nobody could actually let us know their answer to the challenge. Andy, did you take the challenge?
1: <laughs> I did not take did the you? challenge. <laughs>
0: this is like, this is like <laughs> saying Tammy, what about lungs? I didn't do my uh, homework. I didn't do that? my homework. That's right. Well, I can tell you that I actually thought about it for a little bit because I did actually. I went back and and I listened. I did. I I took I took the challenge, and it, it may be a bit contrived, but this is what I think. Both um, the the um, the um, the scientist and the podcast and Shakespeare are actually talking, they are actually speaking using technical language and forms, right? One is of Mm -hmm. science, one is of, um, of poetry, and both of them are working very hard within those forms to explain something to us. And so it made me think about the fact that explanations are necessarily shaped around the kind of language that people are using for very deliberate purposes. So how's that for like trying to meet my own challenge? Um, We will actually try to find some way for people to get in touch with us and take this challenge. I'd love to hear, for example, from Tammy's entire class about tracing something back in their experience of moving from point B to point A instead of the other way around. Um, And we also close with recommendations. Um, Andy, do you have any recommendations for, besides a challenge? Do you have a,
1: any kind of. I think people should pick, pick up any poem from uh, Busan or from Basho. They're, they're the two most famous haiku poets in Japan and just dig in.
0: Oh, I will do that. I've never I, I know of, of both of them, but have not read anything by them. I'm going to do a slightly different. I'm going to actually move to music a little bit. One from one Sublime and one Ridiculous. Um, one is that I actually we've lost somebody to COVID whose music is um, was extraordinary and has been acknowledged as such by lots of other musicians. But I would highly recommend that someone go back that everybody go back and listen to one song by John Prine. Um, and the one that I would actually uh, recommend as your entry point into uh, his work would be uh, a song called "Angel" from Montgomery, um, and that's 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 really what I think of as a as a as a quintessential American sound, um, and uh, that's a voice that we that we will now associate with this kind of time of loss, but also a time of you know his 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 music has got that kind of gritty hopefulness in it. Uh, If you want to go to The Ridiculous, I highly recommend that you Google today because it only came out last night. Uh, Marvelous uh, little bit from Jimmy Fallon's um, show in which all the members of his his in-house band, The Roots, who are sublime to begin with, um, and, and is led by the amazing Questlove. They got together with Sting, and they're all separate in all their different rooms, and they sing Don't Stand So Close To Me. And they're all playing instruments or anything that they had in their house. So you'll actually see members of the band playing things like the scissors, just opening them and closing them or <laughs> dropping things in a connect in a connect four, uh, or hitting on a pillow. And um, it's it's actually it's and you see all their faces in the screen. And um, it's also a public service announcement. So those would be my recommendations. Um, and uh, until next time, who is going to be joining us next time, Andy?
1: um do we know yet (laughs) we're we're gonna edit that Um, (laughs) it's it's going to be one of two different people and we will know soon that's
0: really exciting that's the other that's the other you know um sharing air challenges who's going to be back with us um you know who can follow tammy schneider no,
1: it was it was a great conversation to, to especially to bring in all of these different relevant parts of, of our community here
0: yeah i have just this is you know we, you know this is we have such a community to talk to and this was a great way to start um so that's kind of it for me how about from you andy
1: I think that's it for me too. So this is us signing off from this episode called On Air from Sharing Air, a podcast about how we connect across isolation, exploring our complex relationship with air during these days of distance and transformation. Until next time.